Blog Talk Radio. tackle some pretty tough topics sometimes. Today we have a tough topic, but not in the same sense that we usually use that terminology. Today we're talking about, well, actually two things. We're talking about doing something about a problem, um, i.e. creating a, a nonprofit, creating a foundation, and we're also talking about a specific foundation that does something pretty unique and pretty special for victims of abuse. Joining us is Keith Beach. Keith, thank you for joining us. Thank you for being here, and uh, welcome. Well, good morning, Heather. Thank you for asking me to participate. Keith is here because he is the director and founder of the Jennifer Beach Foundation. Keith, there's quite a story to why you started the foundation. Would you share that with us? Oh, sure, sure. Uh, quite a while ago, my daughter, who was a pretty caring, um, kind young lady, was uh, came across a little girl that had been uh, injured by a abusive mother. And my daughter's name was Jennifer, and Jennifer noticed this little girl had bruises on her shoulder, who, which later was proved to be, believe that that young lady's mother had hit her with a coat hanger. Um, kind of a very difficult situation, and Jennifer was pretty proactive, and she called CPS. And in that particular situation, they said there wasn't much they could do, and that kind of disturbed Jen, and she uh, told her mother and I about it. We knew the family of that little girl. So we just told her we'd keep an eye on it and see if anything could be done, uh, if there was any more harm to that little girl done. What I didn't realize is how much that incident impacted Jen, and at the time she was in an honors English class at Redmond High School. And... Uh, that situation moved her for a final assignment for that class to write a poem called Bruised Inside and Out, and that was from the perspective of the little girl that she met. Well, we didn't know Jen had written that poem, and on the last day of her junior year, on her on Jennifer's way home from school, Jen was killed in a car accident. As, uh, as we were going through her things in the car after the accident, we came across the poem that she wrote. And in the poem, she named the mother of this little girl, and at that time, I was uh, pretty naive about domestic violence and child abuse and things and certainly wasn't aware of how much denial perpetrators uh, have at certain times. But I thought maybe if this mother would read Jennifer's words, that maybe it somehow might make a difference. And uh, that's the only words in the poem today that we've changed. We, changed. we took the name out of that lady and just put in mother. But it worked out that this lady read Jen's poem, and it helped move her uh, to see her actions maybe a little bit outside herself and uh, she ended up going to counseling, which was a pretty cool thing because at the time she had a 10-year-old daughter and a 6-year-old son, and it was kind of neat that something that Jennifer started while she was still with us still carried over and helped somebody after she was gone. Um, as a result of that, we held on to her poem for quite a while, ended up meeting a gentleman in Seattle that had a small publishing company, and I talked to him about Jen's poem and said, we'd like to use this in some way to help other victims or other families uh, where this type of activity may be going on. And he said, uh, well, I'd be glad to help you. And he ended up becoming one of our board members, and he, we published our book. And he said, well, maybe uh, you might want to protect it in terms of copyright or however you want to do. So we ended up creating a little 501c3 and had Jennifer's poem published. And initially we were sharing the poem with uh, emergency rooms at hospitals, youth groups at churches, uh, counseling offices at high schools and junior highs, at TV shelters, that kind of thing. And that's kind of what got us started, Heather. And now, after four years of sharing her poem, uh, for the last 10 years, we've been providing direct services to victims of child abuse and domestic violence. Quite a story. Quite a story. And one of the things that we're going to talk about today, Keith, is that I talk to many people, in both just as a as a human being out and about and also as a person who does the show. And I talk to a lot of people who feel driven to do something. They want to start do something. They want to start a group. They want to do something to help a particular situation, domestic violence, child abuse, whatever. And they're not quite sure how to go about it. And so you're a good example for us of, of how you can just take your idea and make it happen. And so we're going to talk a little bit more about specifics for people to think about and specifics that you used in order to make your um, 
foundation happen. But first I want to talk a little bit more about what the foundation does. Let me also uh, give our phone number. We have a chat room if you go to www.blogtalkradio.com slash three women, three ways. That's digits three, not spelled out. You'll get to our uh, homepage, and that's probably where you're listening right now if you're listening live. And there is a chat room there. If you'd like, you can click onto the chat room, and uh, you can type in a message for me, and I'll read it on the air. If you'd like to give Keith your message or a question yourself directly, you can call us, 646-378-0430. That's 646 378 0430. And we would love to hear your comments. Maybe you've thought about starting a foundation. Maybe you know somebody who could benefit from getting in touch with Keith's foundation. So, um, Keith, tell us more about the foundation. What exactly do you do? Uh, one of the things that absolutely, absolutely I, I think, fills a huge need is that you do educate people on financial um, and, and money issues. Uh, which is huge when you're going through uh, abuse, especially domestic violence, when a uh, divorce is probably involved. And uh, money is always a huge, huge issue, mostly not having enough of it. But just because you don't have enough of it doesn't mean that things like the IRS aren't going to want you to meet obligations, etc. And what do you, does the foundation do to help women with their financial situation? Well, Heather, let me come back to that in, in just a second. We, okay. One of the things that you asked about in terms of what do we do, um, I, I found out it, it's kind of interesting because we named ourselves after my daughter, and that's kind of what gave us the inspiration to do what we're doing. But when we named it Jennifer Beach Foundation, and this is a tip maybe for some others, um, is that we, we and our, our intention always had been um, to provide direct services to victims of family violence. But in using the word foundation in our name, we sometimes get confused as being a funder. And ah. we've had interesting stories over the years about how that kind of uh, misnomer on our part has, has created some very unusual situations. Um, and in some cases, it's made it more difficult for us to, to raise funds when we've been out trying to do some fund raising because they think, well, you're a foundation, you've got what you need. Um, uh, but yeah. So that was just a, a short comment for those. When it comes to what we do or what we're trying to do on our mission, there, there are some very uh, large, long-standing domestic violent uh, children's advocate groups in, in, in our part of the country that have been around, and they do a great job, and they're very large, and they're great at, at lobbying for new laws and working with funding sources at the federal, state, and, and county levels. And so I didn't feel we needed to do that as much as maybe provide practical tools to the folks that come to us. And we can be kind of a smaller version of what some of the other groups do that have many more services than, than we do, such as shelter and those kind of things. So um, how, how we got started in, in terms of being able to do that, I was at a meeting with uh, one of the other large groups, and I mentioned that I was an accountant in another life and kind of had a passion for financial literacy, whether it be in the DV community or others. You know, they always say that sex, communication, and money are three things that kind of sometimes creates problems in households and families splitting up and couples splitting up. And I said, well, maybe we can do something at least in the financial literacy arena that may, may help smooth the way a little bit that leads to one less argument in the household and one less things getting out of control. And I mentioned that at a meeting. And one of the people that was at that group had recently received a grant to do financial literacy for victims of domestic violence. And the, the person within that agency that had written the grant request had left. And now they were kind of had a little bit of funding but didn't know what to do. And it turned out to be an awesome kind of start for us because I was looking to see, well, where do we fit in the community and how can we help? And here's somebody come in with an opportunity for us. And a, a, a domestic violence advocate who happened to be named Jennifer, which was so cool, came and said that uh, her boss had heard me talk and would like to know if I would like to help. And uh, I said, yeah, this is great. So we ended up creating a program that we call Hope and Power. And it's a 10-week class. Uh, for uh, financial literacy class for victims of domestic violence because, like you pointed out, oftentimes uh, our clients have been in an environment where the economic uh, portion of their life has been controlled by somebody else. 
They had very limited resources that when they left, maybe they had to leave without any resources. Um, so we said, well, how can we help with that? And I didn't want to do a seminar kind of approach because, as we all know, when we go to seminars, we may retain 5 or 10% of it, and maybe we've got notes and that kind of thing. But in being able to have our clients come back, uh, they meet three hours a week, one time a week for 10 weeks. We have the opportunity to kind of be repetitive. We get to know them. They get to know us. Um, the class had, had when we used to partner with this other group for five years, and then we went off and we're each doing our own thing now. But it was very cool because we had a male and a female that were facilitating the class. And Jennifer helped teach me how to be a much better domestic violence advocate, and I helped her develop a financial literacy program. So we had a great partnership, and we could present uh, to the to the people that came to our class, which in every case has been a woman, and which at this point in life we've probably had more than 600 women that have gone through this class. Um, but they've seen, and the and class Jennifer, is free. I, I need to make sure everybody knows that. Class it is always free. free. The class is always free. And Jen is still doing, Jen was a Spanish-speaking domestic violence advocate, and we had the program, uh, with the help of Plaza Bank, we had the program translated into Spanish. So there's also an opportunity for uh, Spanish-only speaking clients to participate in this class. Um, but it's kind of cool with Jennifer and I being two different generations, being one male, one one female. We don't always agree on things or didn't always agree on the, the best way for somebody to do something. Um, and the class could see that we didn't argue and nobody got hurt. <laughs> you know, nobody had yeah. to raise their voice. And we could have differences. And we, we found out very, I found out very quickly um, in our classes that our, our financial aid class became kind of, Part support group, part financial literacy, and and that was that was it was eye opening for me in one sense because I hadn't been exposed to the environment where some of these people it was the first time they were coming back out, coming out of their house, being part of a group again, and um, and and oftentimes being told that um, they weren't very capable of of doing much, and now they're out trying. And I, and I, I can give you a short story about that. Just kind of flash my. Great. We had, we had a lady, we had one of our clients who had been in a very, very difficult uh, abusive relationship, and she was coming to our class. And one of the topics that we cover in the class, we, we cover all the standard general financial topics, but we also do things like uh, we deal with, with, with legal issues and housing issues and insurance and some of those kind of things. But we're talking about net worth, and net worth is kind of a reality. And we have to always remind the clients that are in the class that we're not talking about their worth as a person um, or as a mom or as a sister or something like that. We're just talking about a number that's on a piece of paper that's kind of reality that we got to use to kind of start and then to, to grow from there. And But sometimes people take that as personal because maybe maybe their liabilities in their life are greater than their assets, and it isn't always their fault. Maybe they were with somebody who racked up big credit card bills or legal bills or they had um, uh, uh, student loans that they couldn't finish school because they, their life was disrupted due to the abusive situation that they were in. So sometimes people get hit by that, and they get hit by that in the class sometimes. And we had this one woman that had come to class one day, and we got to a point in the discussion, and and she just she she had she she had a tear coming down her cheek, and and I asked her what was going on, and she said, "I can't do this." And I knew her well enough at that point that I could say, um, well, you know, I think you probably can. I mean, you got in your car and you drove here today. You, you took a shower and got dressed and all that, and you found your way here. We're not going to do anything in this class that's any more difficult than that. And then she started crying with both eyes. <laughs> and, and, uh, and I go, well, you know, you have all these other things, and you're more than capable to do what we're doing here. And she looked at me and she said, nobody has ever told me I was capable of doing anything. And it was really cool. And she sat down, and she became one of the best students in the class. Um, so we learned through trying to do something as practical as teaching somebody how to uh, balance their budget or plan meals in, in a cost-effective way to being able to touch people in other ways. And, and students bring things to us, and they share their resources, and that can get shared with the other folks. So that's, that's one of the practical things that we do. We also do Can I just share, you, you shared a story, I want to share a story too. I was sure. privileged enough many years ago, several years ago I guess, to be a guest at one of your um, um, 
the one of the, the classes. And I was so impressed with, uh, I think it was Jennifer who was doing the presentation, and she was talking about taxes. And, you know, it had never occurred to me, but it is an absolute fact that when women leave, sometimes they have to leave with just their kids and their the shirts on their backs. And what happens if you don't have all those tax documents next time you have to file something with the IRS? I mean, it's just a mess. What do you do? And the presenter was was just so helpful in giving ideas for women on how to deal with that stuff. I mean, women who leave those kinds of situations have so much to deal with, and then when you stop and think that they also have the same stuff that we have to deal with when we don't have all those extra problems, you know, I mean, what do you do when you're supposed to file taxes but you don't have any documentation because you had to leave it behind? You know, what do you do if you find out the IRS comes after you because you find out that your spouse has been doing all sorts of stuff that, you know, he wasn't supposed to be doing, but he was telling you that he was doing it, you know. I mean, it was just such an eye-opener for me, and, and I just thought, what a gift for people, because you've got enough to worry about, and then, wham, you get hit with this financial stuff, and it must just be awful. It must be awful. Um, and to have a resource um, like like Jennifer, like the Foundation, um, to say, okay, look, there's ways we can do this, and this is how. Um, wow, what a, I mean, that was just stunning to me, Keith, to to go there and and um, find out that there was that kind of help available for for people. So um, I just thought that was just wonderful. <laughs> oh well, thanks. Well, you know, in that situation, that particular situation, it's uh, you, there, there's there's a tax, an IRS tax advocate that you can ultimately get to. We have numbers for that that we can share with people. And when people have to leave a relationship, and they were never part of any of preparing the tax returns or managing the payroll or any, you know any of that stuff when the mm-hmm. when the money came in for the budget, um, you can still go and get a copy of your return as long as you supply your name and your social security number, and you can do that separate. And we sometimes say that's you know because oftentimes the the abusive party in that situation just says here sign this. Just sign your return. Don't worry about it, you know. And you don't really have the opportunity because if you challenge that, you may end up getting hurt. So yes. once you've broken away from that relationship, or even if you're in sometimes, depending on what you feel is safe for yourself, you can get a copy. And that's sometimes how people find hidden assets because a perpetrator may not have any problem picking on somebody that's smaller than them, but they won't mess around with the IRS. So when they go to fill out their tax return, they make sure they put down this other account that they got interest off of or these other things. And that sometimes can be revealing in situations where a uh, relationship ends up going through a dissolution and they have to do property settlement and and those kind of things. But, you know, one thing I might say, Heather, for your listeners, when it comes to um, kind of how informed or uninformed a person is about their, their kind of their economic life. Because when we talk about domestic violence, we actually talk about at least five forms, whether physical, sexual, psychological, emotional, and now we often talk about economic abuse that goes on. And I always tell people, because some people, just like any task that we have in our household, some people like to do the yard work and some don't. Some like to do the laundry, some don't. Some like to pay the bills, some don't. And what I always try and advise our clients, which the majority of our clients are are women, mothers or wives in situations, and I say, you guys work out whatever the roles are that make your household happy, you figure that out. And if you never want to pay a bill, that's okay. But you should. You should just assume the responsibility to make sure you know where everything is and that you know what is in place and what's coming in. And Because if something happened to the other party, you need to be informed. And if you feel that that puts you in harm's way, then make sure you take the appropriate step to not put yourself in harm's way, but at least take that as maybe a sign, maybe a red flag, that that's maybe part of an unhealthy relationship. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I just, you know, I, I mean, you don't want to mess with the IRS, and, and the IRS doesn't really care too much. And I was just really impressed that, you know, uh, the, here was a resource to help women with that kind of thing, because that's the last thing you need when you're going through all this other stuff is to have the IRS saying, well, you you know, we're coming after you for all these funds, or we're, you know, um, you, you owe back taxes or something like that. And, uh 
wow, you know, I mean, it, it, it was, anyway, it was just a, a really good experience for me to see that there was that kind of help available for somebody because um, that must be, I mean, talk about your double whammies, you know, to to have to deal with the domestic violence situation, dealing with a divorce, dealing with the lack of money, dealing with everything else that women deal with when they're going through domestic violence, and then also having to deal with taxes and then, you know, that kind of thing. So it, I, I thought that that was an area that really was uh, filling a, a great need. And um, so anyway, kudos kudos to the foundation for that. Um, oh. But the, the the foundation does other things besides that kind of stuff, the financial literacy. What other kinds of things does the foundation do? Well, again, our primary purpose is to provide direct service to folks that are hurting from family violence. So we we do advocacy-based counseling. And, and Heather, there isn't anything that we do in our organization that we charge our clients for. Um, so we do advocacy-based counseling for both uh, children and adults, we do some emergency assistance funding. We're, we're a small little group that's always scratching for funding, but if we can help with a motel voucher in situations where uh, we can put somebody in a safe place while they're waiting for a longer-term housing arrangement to open up, um, we, we try and do that. We, uh, we do safety planning with, uh, with groups because you know, it's kind of an interesting thing. Safety planning is just a good thing to do in general in life, whether – Mount St. Helens blows up again and we're prepared to deal with that, or whether you're in an abusive relationship and you don't know when that, that volcano is going to erupt in your household and what you need to do to be prepared in terms of if you have to leave, if you have to go to a doctor or a family member. It's always better to kind of plan ahead what you might what you might do, hopefully you never have to, but you may want to plan ahead because you're a lot calmer at that time than in the heat of the battle or the, the sense of the emergency of the situations going on. So we work with our clients to try, and we have some safety planning things with kids. I mean, things even as simple as with a child that if a child feels that they're being threatened or they're being uncomfortable because of arguments they hear going to the house, then maybe they have a code word. And maybe if they share that code word with, with mom or dad, then that reminds mom or dad that maybe they're getting out of hand a little bit. Um, so we try to do those things. We do a program called Kids Club, which is a 10-week program that ours is kind of patterned after our Open Power 10-week class, where the, per- the mission of, that, of, of the Kids Club is to help kids see that there's, there's healthier behavior than to hurt somebody or break something when they get angry or frustrated. It doesn't make sense to tell a child that, well, don't ever get mad or don't ever get angry. That just doesn't make sense. But we want to help them see um, how they can maybe better handle their anger and frustration when things happen and they don't always understand why. Heather, I had a a doctor at a multi-care facility in Covington many years ago now that invited me to a presentation he did for mandatory reporters that were at his hospital. And I still, I will always remember this this uh, scene. There was a little video in the presentation he had. And it, there was a, a woman who was literally laying on her kitchen floor, and her little three-year-old came in and started kicking her because that's what Daddy was doing. And Ugh. in that situation, that adult perpetrator, who knows if anybody can ever get to that person so he can seek help for him, but the little three-year-old, the little three-year-old, if somebody doesn't step in and intervene, that little three-year-old can grow up doing the same behavior that he was modeled. And so... There was a time when I couldn't figure out, if you were hurt as a kid, why would you grow up and hurt your kids? And there are a lot of reasons now that I understand better, but maybe in certain cases a person grows up and they have the attitude, well, it was good enough for me, it's good enough for my kids, that kind of thing. Or maybe it was the only role model that they saw because it was something that had come down generation after generation. So our effort with Kids Club is to try and help break that cycle. And in our Kids Club, the... uh, the non-offending parent, which in our situation has always been a mom, has to participate as well. So we have a licensed mental health therapist that works with the children, and at the same time we have a DV advocate. I was the DV advocate in our last class that we had that, that ended in November. Um, and we help the moms find ways to to talk with the kids because sometimes the kids have seen and heard, been moved around a lot, they've, done, you know, they, they've seen all this, and we know through a, a thing called ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences, that in some kids maybe things just bounce off, but in a lot of kids they don't. And that becomes part of their psyche, and there's got to be some assistance for that. But oftentimes the moms either feel guilty or they don't know how 
to talk to the kids about it, and especially if the kids are older, teens, they never talk to them about it. And in our situation, we try and give them some tools to open up and be able to have a little bit better line of communication with the children. We're doing some things now with teen dating violence and and, uh, and teen abuse, and there's a program put out by the Washington State Coalition Against Domestic Violence called In Their Shoes, Teen Dating Violence. It's a role-playing exercise that originally was intended for uh, for folks that would be working with teens uh, and teen advocates and, and teachers' counselors and that. But we've taken it to the schools and done it with with teenagers to the extent that now the state coalition actually puts out a version that's a classroom version. And you, you literally walk the walk of a real-life victim. Uh, you know, names have been changed and all that. But this program got started as a result of a young lady here in Washington who was an 18-year-old that had just graduated from high school and was going to move out of state to go to, to college, where her 22-year-old boyfriend decided that he was the only one for her, got his father's one of his father's guns and killed the 18-year-old young lady and then killed himself. Um, a very tragic situation, and the family of that young lady wanted to do something to help other families maybe catch uh, through through seeing signs, through red flags, through other things, that type of behavior before it got too late. And so we're, we're talking now with some school districts about being able to go. We've done the program now with four different groups of high school kids and with a group of young adults from Green River. And it's, 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 it's awesome because if you are alive at all and you play one of those characters, you can't help but feel some empathy for somebody in those situations. And, Heather, when we do this in groups of, of 12 or 24 or something, the likelihood that we are touching somebody that is either walking that walk at that moment or knows somebody that is or knows somebody that has. And so we have to be prepared to deal with that, and that comes up from time to time. We recently had an exercise where we did that with uh, some adults, and we're trying to, to show them uh, this uh, and one of the participants in the group um, played the role of the young lady that was murdered. And when it got to the end, of, and what happens in this thing is you walk the walk of a victim and you're given choices. And you make a choice as to where you might go for some help. And you go to, you physically, you go, because we set the, the exercise up, that you walk to another location and there's a card. You read the card, you make a decision. You read the card, you make a decision. And the whole thing takes about 40 40 minutes or so. And the last card of that particular victim was where the young man puts the gun to the temple of the young lady. And at that point, the person that was playing the role of that character at the time had a flashback because that's exactly what her husband had done to her. And she was able to share with us her experience. But it was the, 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 the whole intent of this exercise is to train people to help teens that may be in that situation see the signs, but also to open a dialogue so that we can find ways to, to, to let people know that there is help for people going through those situations, or more importantly, to let teens that are in those situations know that they are not alone. And well, and the other like, thing that we were talking, we were talking before, Keith, about what, you know, children repeating behavior they've seen, we, we, we grow, we become what we see. And if we don't see any other alternatives, if we don't see any, if we don't have any example of how to look at things other than the way that they're being looked at, you know, in our dis, in, in you know, in dysfunction, um, we we don't we can't make uh, we we can't make adequate decisions. We can't you know we we can't come up with alternatives. And the uh, joy I think of doing something like inner shoes is that it does it's an experiential thing where it does allow you to see other ways, other ways of doing things. Yeah, well and I because that, sometimes what you've seen as you grow up, you take as that's normal. Right. And, well, we all and, do. Uh, I mean, I, what we see is what we think is normal. Um, and uh, when we can see other ways, you know, I, I, I think, you know, when our eyes are open to other ways, I think that that's invaluable um, uh, for, for folks. And I think that's one of the benefits of the inner shoes exercise is that you actually, you, you develop empathy. I mean, how many times do we hear, well, why didn't she just leave? Why didn't she just do, you know, whatever? Um, because it's very easy to make assumptions 
based on on your life and you know what you're experiencing but when you have the inner shoes you know it, you you can learn and figure out that it's not all that easy you know <laughs> you know it's not all that easy and and uh i d- i've i've had the opportunity to do that one as well the inner shoes and and it's uh, it, it's just a wonderful way of teaching um i think and and helping people understand and providing alternatives, or at least alternative ways of thinking. So I, I think that's great that you're, you know, doing that so much with the, and, and going in the schools. What other and things? Heather, what this, other is, this is a new version. This is a different version than In Her Shoes. It, oh, okay. In Her Shoes, and I've had the opportunity to do that three times now. In Her Shoes is kind of at an adult level where okay. you walk the walk of a victim and 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 have to figure out well what you're going to do next. I always tell people it's like if you if if you were playing one of the characters and you woke up that morning and your husband wasn't very happy because there was a wrinkle in his shirt and he threw you up against a wall and as you were going up against the wall you hit your hand and you're not really sure that you might have broke your wrist but he still wants you to get breakfast for him and now he's left. What do you do? You know, do you call the police? Do you go to a family member, do you seek a protection order, do you go to the hospital to get your hand fixed, or do you have to get the kids up and get them ready for school? What do you do? And then you follow that walk. And if you've done In Her Shoes, then you kind of know that. When when this, the family of this young lady that was murdered came to the state coalition, somebody in their great wisdom at the coalition said, we need to do something specifically for teens. And they said, wow. why don't we do something similar to the In Her Shoes program, but we will call it In Their Shoes. Ah, uh, okay. Right, and it's it's, it's I, and, and I didn't I wasn't aware of that I thought it was the same program so ah oh, very good very good yeah and if you've never done the in in their shoes maybe sometimes we can we can arrange that way I said we just did a one for some folks in our office uh, last week um, uh, and and it was pretty neat and I love sharing it um, but you know it's like you were saying earlier sometimes if you don't know any difference or, or especially if you don't know there's help for you or you think you're alone. And this doesn't happen to anybody else, but it does. And, and, you know, when you're going through that, you kind of feel that way. When somebody dies in your life, you're going through all that grief, and you forget that other people have had, you know, people die in their life. But you feel it right now, and you feel alone. And it, it amazes me that how much exposure we've had in the last few years about wanting to do something to help victims of domestic violence, that still there's a lot of people that say, oh, I didn't know there was help, or I didn't know there was this, or I thought it was just how families worked. Or And now, especially in the Northwest, we have such diverse culture, and there are some cultural norms that we have to take into consideration when people um, would like to reach out for help, and maybe that's against some of the upbringings that they've had. Um, but I remember, Heather, when I went through domestic violence advocate training at one of the large advocate groups here in Seattle, that, um, and it was somebody said, you know, if you're going to be dealing with, with clients directly, and me being a guy, there aren't a lot of men that are doing what I'm doing. And, um, you know, they were going, if you're going to work with victims, then you need some training. And at that time, I was like saying yes to everything. They didn't tell me it was 17 classes and 50 hours. And, uh, and <laughs> I'm going, Thanks for telling me that now, <laughs> but you know, yeah. but it, it was like really good for me. But I remember at one of the classes we had a break, and we were sitting like two people at a table, and we had a break, and I didn't need to get up and go get anything to drink or anything, and neither did the lady that was sitting next to me, the woman that was sitting next to me, and we just started talking and saying hi, how are you? And we'd been to you know halfway through the class or whatever it was, and we just got around to that part about, well, you know, where do you live and this and that. And I mentioned something, and, and she had asked if, if I was married. I said, yeah, and I said, are you married? And she said, she goes very, very adamantly, no, and I never will be. And I'm going, really? Why? And she said, well, and, and this was, Heather, this was a woman that was probably 35, something like that, a a, a beautiful woman, an educated woman, and I'm going, I don't understand you, would you share? And she says, yeah. I didn't realize it when I was a kid, but my grandfather, and I see now, my grandfather was abusive to my grandmother. My father was abusive to my mother. I've had two adult relationships, and both of my partners were abusive to me. I've decided never to have be put in that situation again. And I'm going, and I'm really naive, okay, <laughs> because I'm just learning how to be. I'm going, wait a minute. How can you 
how can you cut that part of your life about having an intimate partner, a friend, a best friend, a uh, you know, somebody to do all of fun things in life and to lean on when you need somebody there. How could you just cut that out? And she was so convinced that based on her choice list that she had before that she would repeat it. And I said, well, maybe you just need to change your list. Maybe you need to, you know, use what you've seen before now. But it was kind of sad because she just became, thought that that was just kind of maybe more normal than not normal. And it kind of had the reminder that I believe, whether it's women or men, there's a lot more nice people out there than there are hurtful people. Yes, I, and and that is hard to remember, I think. Um, and, you know, sometimes I had a discussion um, actually on, on one of the shows a, a week or so, a couple weeks ago. Um, uh, one of the researchers had said something that um, that she mentioned uh, some research that indicated that women who are in, in abusive relationships uh, repeat that. And I have a real issue with those statistics because I think it smacks of blaming the victim. If you just stop and think that more than 25% of women are abused, what's the likelihood one in four? that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, one out of four. So, you know, what, what's the likelihood that you're going to uh, stumble, you know, you have a 25% chance of stumbling upon another abuser? Uh, whether there's anything in you or not, you know what I'm saying? And I think that um, it is frequent that women see abuse not only in their homes, but that they uh, encounter it in their relationships, and they may encounter it more than once. And they begin to think that it's either the the institution or it's them, uh, when in fact I think it's just likelihood. What do you do? You do you agree with me, or am I minimizing something here? I probably <laughs> let me see Heather. I probably agree with you to some degree, okay. Mm-hmm. But I see, and I'm sure that I'm sure that maybe that that's part of it. Maybe contribute to it just the volume of people that we see that that are exposed to to abusive behavior. But I also see situations where um, because I, I see a lot in our office people that come in. It's the, it's the second, third, fourth relationship they've had and and they've all been they've all ended up in kind of similar places and I, I don't put that as much as a fault on our client as much as as maybe again that may be what they thought was kind of normal and they're just kind of looking for something that's not as bad as the last one or in the cases of they they've been oftentimes our clients have been put down so much that their self-esteem and their self-confidence has been very low so the first time somebody comes along and pays them some interest, then they, they kind of, you know, gravitate towards that. And if it comes with some other bad stuff, well, they kind of figure that that's part of the price they pay. Um, we see that with teenagers. And, I mean, teenagers are going through so many different things and trying to grow up and trying to think that, you know, seeking their freedom and all of that, and especially those that may may be a little awkward in situations or may not be as pretty as the next person or something. Maybe they're having problems with their parents at home, and now somebody expresses some interest in them. And maybe for alternative purposes, but they've expressed interest in them, and now they latch onto that. And, and, and... They they kind of they kind of justify the maltreatment that they're given or the bad treatment that they're given um, is kind of the price they're paying to keep the attention, and it's really really sad. Um, yeah. But we had we 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 had some kids uh, a while back. There used to be a group in King County that's no longer around called the South King County Community Network, and they put up a little bit of funding and our organization put up a little funding, and we got 15 kids out of a. Uh, a church youth group in Covington that put on an assembly at Kent Ridge High School, and they came up with a theme as, have you had enough? It's like, have you had enough being pushed around in a hallway? Have you had enough being somebody saying something to you really? Have you had enough of being in an uncomfortable dating situation? Have you had enough to reach out for help? And that was the theme that they did. And and, and they did a really good job. And we had a teen violence uh, prevention advocate kind of mentor them a little bit for the ideas that they had. But but one thing is we had a, a teacher that came out of the Seattle School District. She was 27 years old. And, you know, it's it's not hard if I need a speaker. It's not very hard to find a survivor of domestic violence. But when we tried to find a survivor of teen violence, it became very difficult. And I called my friends at the other groups and all that. And then finally this this 
a friend of ours found this teacher that was willing to come and speak to these kids. We had 425 kids in a pod at Kentwood High School, mostly freshmen and sophomores. And this young lady came, and she shared her experience as her, her first boyfriend-girlfriend relationship was with a young man that was two years older than her. He was a junior senior. And it kind of messed her up until she was almost through college that she finally realized that what she had experienced in high school um, was was not a healthy relationship in the sense that it wasn't a, a normal relationship because she went through all of the classical signs she would she would blow off grades on purpose because if she got a better grade than he got he'd get angry he had her do sexual things that she wasn't ready for but did he isolated from her friends he just wanted her to hang out with his friends and his group all of those classical things and she never really realized it until she was out and almost by that time 21 years old and she came and shared her story but it's kind of like we said i don't at some point you hope you can get to people and that's one of our missions is to show people that um maybe there's some things you can look out for and the model the advocacy model here in washington state and maybe throughout the u.s is that the best person to make a decision regarding their individual situation is that person but sometimes they need help in maybe seeing a broader picture so they can make the best decision for them and i think sometimes when we have victims that are go from one abusive relationship to another to another maybe they just haven't been exposed to that broader picture of the world and, and maybe given some of the help for them to, to to come up with maybe different decisions. Yeah. Keith, you decided to start this foundation. You, d- you just got the notion that you wanted to do something and you wanted to help, and you started the foundation. I talk to a lot of people who want to do something. They want to start, start something uh, in order to help. And... How do you do it? How do you go about saying, how do you go from, yes, I want to start something, I want to do something, to actually doing it? What were the steps you took? What was the motivation you had? What was, how did you make it happen? Well, it, uh, Heather, I, I guess it, it kind of depends on your purpose and, and what you want to do. Um, in our particular case, we, we I, I mentioned to you, I met a guy who was a publisher. We published Jen's book. He said, well, maybe you want, I mean, her poem, and, and our poem is on is on our website if anybody would like to, to read Jennifer's poem. Oh, please poem. give your website. I, I, give out your website, Keith, okay? It's, it's just, it's www.jn as in Nancy, b as in boy, foundation.org. And you can find Jen's story and, and read Bruised Inside and Out is there. But Heather, when, when we met the guy who was the publisher, and he said, we can do this and we publish it, but you might want to copyright the book. And we said, well, if we do that, well, then maybe we could um, maybe we could use it. Maybe the book could be used, or the poem, it's, a, it's in a booklet form, could be used with some of the advocate groups as maybe a fundraiser for them. We didn't really know how, how it was going to do, but we thought maybe if that could be used, and it could help the victims that they have that come to their agency. And we said, well, okay, if we're going to do that, then maybe you want to do like a 501c3. And the the primary purpose for us doing a 501c3, just for people that don't know that, I mean, you're familiar with that term, right? You've heard that term? Right. Uh-huh. Okay. What that is, for those who, who, who may not know, is that's actually a section of the IRS code. It's section 501, subparagraph C, subparagraph 3. And that identifies, um, in, in our case, a public charity and the rules that go along with that. And we said, well, why would we want to do that? Well, number one, if you, if you, if, if, it's all about funding. You can go around and do your purpose and help people and raise money and do all that without being a 501c3. But it becomes a little bit easier if your purpose is to raise funds to help research or to help shelters or whatever the purpose is that you use those funds um, is because – any organization that wants to give money will ask if you're a 501c3 because they, that's part of their structure and their mission, their bylaws. And and if you want to be able to, if your organization wants to be able to raise funds and make it tax deductible for individual uh, donors, then you have to be 501c3 too. So we said, okay, well, that sounds like something we may want to do. So 
we contacted the IRS and found out there's an actual application that you have to fill out. And, and anybody can do it. What I, what I would advise, and it's what I ended up doing, is you, if, you always either have somebody help you that maybe has done it before. I've always offered to help others because I went through it and I've had a couple of people help me. And then have somebody review it before you submit it. One of the most helpful comments to me was when you, when you fill out that application and it gets approved, you're kind of locked into it for a while. You can amend it later, but you kind of locked into it. And I was told, make your mission as broad as possible. So in our particular case, we focused on helping victims of child abuse and domestic violence. But what we also did is we have a second mission that we haven't been able to fund anymore yet, but is that we provide uh, financial scholarships to young adults that are seeking vocational or, uh, or scholastic education opportunities. So we have two missions, so they can do that. Um, and and it's, it's, it's basically just a form you fill out with the IRS. And it takes a few weeks to get it, come back and approved. And at the same time, you have to go to the state. We went to the state, Secretary of State's office, and I physically went to Olympia just because that's who I am. I'm just used to doing things that way. But you don't have to. Um, you fill an application out. We, we, in our sense, we're a nonprofit corporation registered with the Secretary of State's office. It's not a big deal. Again, it's just a form. There's like a $10 annual fee that we pay. Um, and then when you go beyond that, it gets a little bit more kind of complicated because you're, you know, you, people have to remember, a nonprofit is still a business. So you still have all the little things you have to do as a business, whether it's if you're paying people or paying a light bill or whatever the other things are, having to have a facility. Um, and remind me about that in just a second about the facility in case I forget here. But at the state level, we had to go to Secretary of State's office and file as a nonprofit corporation. We also had to... Uh, and so you have to create a little board of directors, and you have to have bylaws and articles of incorporation. There's a lot of places you can go to kind of get boilerplate stuff, and then you can tweak it for whatever specific activity that you're doing. Um, and people can contact me, and I can at least help point them in the direction and answer, answer, answer questions if they have. You have to go to the Department of Revenue for the state of Washington and get a master business license. So we did that. And then if you employ people, you have to at least register with the Employment Security Department and the Labor and Industries, and you have to fill out, like, the quarterly reports. Um, those were kind of the procedural things, but one of the practical things is, and a lot of groups that, what I had to get over, Heather, is, you know, you're out there doing something, and you think you're doing something to help other people that is worth other people's attention and money. What, what you sometimes forget is there's a lot of people out there doing a lot of good things to help others, and so I had, to, I had to get used to people saying, well, no, I can't help you right now, or no, I don't want to. I had to get over my feelings being hurt. <laughs> when I said, but I'm doing something that's helping people. How can I help you? And they said, well, yeah, sorry. How can you say no to you me? Just, yes. <laughs> just, yeah, the breast cancer folks. And it's interesting. With domestic violence, it's kind of a little bit different because who's going to be against pancreatic cancer or breast cancer or diabetes? or Who's going to be against that? where we find that sometimes the people we talk to are the perpetrators, <laughs> you know, or people that had a bad experience or something. So and it's a little bit touchier of a subject. But one of the other things for people that are starting up, for a long while after I got started, I, st I worked out of a home office because I partnered with some of the bigger groups and tried to find ways to maybe help them do what they were doing, um, either with expertise that I had or just being a volunteer and being helping them out and we i did some things with city government so i had places i could meet but it wasn't a practical way to do things either with volunteers or with clients uh to meet in a home office environment especially with what we do there may be safety issues that kind of thing and i remember one time i applied for a grant um with a place that with a, an outfit up in seattle and and we weren't selected but i went and i talked to the director and i and i said could you educate me a little bit about this process and she said, yeah, and she said, and, and, and now a lot of times when groups are trying to raise funds through the grant process, uh, because yeah. there's so many people doing good things, that there's actually a letter of intent that may, you may have to fill out first. And it's a brief description, maybe a one- or two-page thing, and you send it in, and then the funders look at those letters of intent, and they decide, oh, well, this and this and this one look like they qualify. Now we will ask them to go through the grant application process. Well, in that particular case I was mentioning, there were like eight opportunities that, the, that this group was going to fund. There were 92 applicants, 
and and that's that we weren't selected. So I happened to be in the area, and I walked in and I talked to the director, and she said, "Well," and I said, "Well, what would what would have been the next step?" if we would have been selected. She handed me a little uh, uh, kind of an agenda of things that they would go through. And I looked down at like the third item, and the third item said to do a site visit. And I'm thinking to myself, sure, you can come to my house and you can see the room up here. <laughs> Four years it's been our office. And, and I'm going, wait a minute, okay, we're at a point, we've been around long enough that maybe we need to see what we can do about having a, a, a office, our own facility somewhere. So we went around the community and we, we worked with some community partners and we ended up doing that. And so it was kind of a blessing how that works out, how that had worked out for us. But um, there are just there are those kind of things. And, and, and then you need to find a way to raise awareness that you're there. And and we still struggle with that. And just we're, we're part of... We're part of the Washington State Coalition Against Domestic Violence. We're members there. We're members of the King County Coalition Against Domestic Violence. We're members of some local community task forces. And the, I live in Covington, and in the Covington city we have a domestic violence task force. And it's been around since 2005. And I will still see members, and I've been part of it since 2006. And we still do activities through Covington days, other things, and I will still ask people, did you know that there's a, there's a, a domestic violence task force here in your city? And they'll go, no. <laughs> so we're kind of like all we, and there's yeah. stories and all kinds of stuff that's gone on. And so we, we, as somebody new, if somebody's new starting out and they have a great passion to help others uh, for whatever reason, either they were touched by something or a family member was or there was a story in the news that moved them to want to help. I mean, I still get I – st- I, 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 it's amazing to me the little girl that was like up in Kirkland that wanted to take water to some folks in, in, in another part of the world, and she started this thing and raised money. So somehow, if you're blessed with getting – you know, on TV or on a radio show like this or whatever, so people can hear what you're doing. But that's always been something that's been kind of a challenge to always let, um, to just raise the awareness that you're in the community and that because we know there are people that need the help. It's just trying to get the connection with them sometimes. Yeah, it, it's it's always an issue, and you get out there and uh, people recognize it uh, for, you know, 20 minutes, and then they forget and move on to the next one. So it's a constant battle to let people know that you're here and that you are, you know, doing doing work. Um, so, it, uh, you know, I think it's an ongoing thing. One of the things that I heard you saying over and over again, Keith, that might be helpful for people to know um, is you talked about community partners that when in several of these steps you talked about finding another organization uh, to partner with. How important is making creating these community partnerships or working with other existing organizations? How important is that in, in uh, creating a successful nonprofit? I, I think it's really important. It's kind of interesting. One of the things I've learned in the advocate world, in the DV advocate world, is it's, 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 it's no different than any other world you're in. You know, you're still in with people, and people are providing a service. And oftentimes you find people that are, are, are awesome people and willing to share what they do and share their resources, and, and you work back and forth. And, and, and just like in any other industry, there are people that, that, that kind of aren't that way very much. Um, and so, so you figure out how and where you can help, and because we all, we, we all need support. And whether it's uh, – I'll give you an example with us. We want to start a support group again this coming fall. We had one at another location, and we've moved in the last year or so. And, but I will never do my support group at the same time a couple of the other groups that, that do support groups. So instead of wanting to compete with them, I just want to be able to give clients another alternative. So if there's a support group being put on by one of the other groups that's, that meets on Tuesday at 2, then I don't want to do one then. We will do one that's maybe on Wednesday evening so that if we have clients, there, so if there are people out there that need the support group uh, or one of our classes that, um, that work during the day but so they couldn't come to the other one, they can come to ours. So we kind of we want to support each other. We certainly have a common message to the public with all the stuff that's gone on in the news, whether it's the NFL or, or other stuff you hear. We all want to have kind of the strength in numbers, that our message is that there is no place for domestic violence in our communities. And so we bound together that way. And you never know where you want to – you may need to – you may need a classroom that somebody else can share with you because you need to meet a client in another place. So it's always good to have those relationships. Uh, yeah. 
when we do fundraising Well, and activities, when you apply for grants, I mean, don't grant, uh, uh, a lot of grant funders will will specifically look to see if you're, uh, you know, out there all on your own or if you're creating something that already has somebody, you know, taking care of it or, you know, I mean, it, it seems to me that when you apply for the grants, too, it's important to um, coordinate and uh, be knowledgeable about and create relationships with other community organizations. It's kind of a tricky thing. It's for us, because we're a small group, it's always nice to be able to mention to funders that we are doing a program with the ECU or we're doing a program with Salvation Army um, or we've supported um, one of the other large groups that are much more visible than us. That's always a great thing. When it comes down to a specific grant uh, where there's X amount of money and there are multiple groups doing the same kind of services, then it sometimes becomes a little competitive. <laughs> you know, so. Yeah. Uh, but but for us, it's always good to show that we aren't we don't stand alone in the community, um, and that what we do has been recognized by groups that are much much more visible than us. And then, but we do you know it's the same with fundraising activities. Every everybody, and when you start a nonprofit, you need to have money. You know unless unless you're blessed with you know a Bill Gates thing or something. And and so we all do different kind. Of, like we we do a charity golf tournament called Scramble for Safe Families. We we've done this will be our seventh year, and we do it in September. And it's just an awesome event, and we've had wonderful support. Um, but other groups do other kind of fundraising. But that's something where we always have to be careful. Let me see: Are we doing it on the same weekend that somebody else is doing this or that? And you can't always worry about that. But it's one of the things that you kind of have to 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 figure out how you schedule, because there's still bills to pay and things. We we've been blessed with having a lot of volunteers and yeah. and our our organization for the most part I've gotten more joy out of being able to help one on one uh with with clients than than uh I probably woefully been lacking and being very aggressive and doing grants and things like that. But um we we always have opportunities for volunteers that can bring their skills and talents to share with us. Well, Keith, you've been doing this for 15 years now, 14 years? Uh, our foundation was organized in December of 2001, but for the first four years or so, we pretty much just shared Jennifer's poem around. And in 2005, I was I was traveling a lot for work, and I got my wife wasn't real happy with how much I was gone, and I got promoted, which meant I would have traveled more. And I kind of just at that moment had this thing, well, maybe we could do something with the foundation, and maybe I could. And, and, and to be honest, Doing what I've done, the foundation has connected me to my daughter in a way I never would have imagined, even with her not being here. Um, and so, in, in September of 2005, so this is coming up on 10 years. Yeah. For us. So, so you've you've got your feet wet. You've gotten in there. You've done a lot of good work. And I know that you know I've been um, uh, really privileged to have known you for the last few years. And uh, you have such dedication and such. Um, and it, as you were saying, sometimes there is a bit of competition between nonprofits because there's only so many dollars. And you have a grace and um, a dedication to your mission that I think is a testament to how someone can take a good idea and make it an even better one. So I really appreciate all the work that you do. Again, you, the uh, website where somebody wants to contact your foundation is J N or J B N. Oh, tell, no, no. tell me the A-N- website. Yeah, it's it's www.jnbfoundation.org. JNB, and um, you, uh, you people who want to contact you directly can do so through the website as well. Yeah, yeah. and I'm such a I'm such a techno uh, literate. We do have a Facebook page now that people can can Google and find our Facebook page and leave us oh, messages great. that way and. I had one one of our our younger volunteers just kind of introduced me to Twitter, so I'm all excited yeah. about people. So you get to like I'm yeah, at the grocery yeah. now. <laughs> yeah, getting gas now. So lost on that, um, Heather, I yeah, wanted to say. Uh, Heather, I, I, I read to... recently that the average Facebook user is over 50, so we're getting there. We're getting there. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I wanted to say thank you, and I also wanted to say you've been part of this startup stuff too, with your DV dog dogs and and all that kind of stuff. And it's been my pleasure to to meet you. 
Oh, well, thank you so much. And, you know, we each do our little bit. We do what we can do. And, and, and you know, we, we just keep plugging away, I think, those of us who, uh, who uh, try to venture out. And, uh, and it's, it's worth it. It's worth it, and I think it's gratifying. And uh, at the end of the day, you can say, well, you know, I didn't conquer the world, but you know what? I did this little piece, and that's important. Keith, thank you that's so much. We've run out of time. I, I can't believe how quickly this hour went. But thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for being with us. And uh, again, um, you know, keep doing your good work. Thank you for joining us. Three women, three ways. Take care. Bye bye.